The Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning. Our next case is State versus Trip, and we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is Nick Broad. I'm in the Department of Justice appearing on behalf of the state. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. This case is about the safety of police officers in an inherently unsafe situation. The officers here were executing a search warrant on a residence where they had probable cause to believe that heroin was being sold. The Court of Appeals majority below held that the Fourth Amendment barred an officer from detaining and frisking the defendant, despite the fact that the defendant was the target of the investigation, was standing near the residence, and was known to have brandished firearms in this location. That decision was wrong for three reasons. First, the officer lawfully detained the defendant because the defendant was an occupant in the immediate vicinity of the area being searched. Second, the officer lawfully frisked the defendant because the officer had reasonable suspicion to believe that the defendant was armed and dangerous. And third, even if there were a constitutional problem with either the detention or the frisk, the heroin laced with fentanyl that was found in the defendant's pants pocket would have been inevitably discovered. The key textual command of the Fourth Amendment is reasonableness. The officers here were reasonable in the face of a dangerous situation, and so the decision below should be reversed. I welcome the court's questions, but absent questions, I wanted to start by putting some of the facts on the table. And I'll start, if I could, with the facts related to the detention and the frisk. I would commend the search warrant and warrant application to the court. You can find that at pages 2 to 14 of the record. The search warrant application shows that police officers here received reports that the defendant was selling what local members of the community called bad heroin that had led to overdose deaths. The officers took action to protect the community from these dangerous drugs. The officers used a confidential informant who bought heroin from the defendant and recorded that transaction using video and audio equipment. Based on this information, the officers applied for and received a search warrant for the defendant's residence. No one disputes that that warrant is supported by probable cause and no one disputes that the defendant was the target of this investigation. The officers carried out the warrant here on April 26, 2017. The defendant lived, uh, or the defendant's residence was located uh, on a stretch of road near uh, where several of his family members lived. Uh, his grandfather, for example, lived next door. Um, when the officers went to execute the search warrant, uh, one of the officers who was on the scene, Deputy Dowdy, testified that when he pulled up, he saw the defendant standing near his grandfather's house uh, right next door. Uh, Deputy Dowdy knew that the defendant was the target of the investigation. Deputy Dowdy also knew that the purpose of the investigation was to investigate the house for heroin. Deputy Dowdy also knew this defendant. Dowdy and the defendant had interacted at least three times in the past in this general location arising out of assault-related incidents. In two of those cases, uh, the defendant had allegedly brandished firearms. Based on all of that information, Deputy Dowdy approached the defendant, detained him, frisked him for weapons, and found heroin in the defendant's pants pocket. I'll start with the question of whether the detention was lawful under the Fourth Amendment, and then I'll turn to the frisk. Um, the detention was lawful in light of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Michigan against Summers. In Summers, the U.S. Supreme Court held that when officers have a warrant for a residence that's supported by probable cause, the warrant implicitly carries with it the authority of the officers to detain individuals who are connected to that property. The authority to detain is a categorical authority. It does not depend on any quantum of individualized suspicion. If you are connected to the property and you are standing near the property when the warrant is being executed, Summers holds that officers may, consistent with the Fourth Amendment, affect a detention. They cannot conduct a frisk 
They cannot conduct a search. They cannot conduct an arrest, but they may affect a detention in order to exercise what Summers called unquestioned command over an inherently dangerous situation. This court in Wilson interpreted the US Supreme Court's decision in Summers to set out a three part test to figure out whether a, an officer may lawfully detain a defendant consistent with the Fourth Amendment. In Wilson, this court held that the first part of this test is deciding whether the individual who was detained is an occupant. This is the, the who question of the search. The second part of that test is whether the defendant was in the immediate vicinity of the area being searched. That's the where question. And the third part of the test is whether the defendant is present during the execution of the warrant. That's the, the when question. I think it's undisputed here that the defendant was in fact present during the execution of the search warrant. So the question in this case is whether the defendant was an occupant and whether the defendant was within the immediate vicinity of the area being searched at the time the warrant was being carried out. I'll start with the occupant question. In Wilson, this court held that occupant is a legal term of art. The court in Wilson rejected the idea that occupant should be interpreted literally. It does not mean that you have to be within the four walls of the house to be an occupant. Rather, this court held in Wilson that an occupant is someone who could pose a real threat to the safe and efficient execution of the warrant. Under that standard, the defendant here was an occupant and subject to a summer's detention. The defendant here posed a threat, a real threat to the safe and efficient execution of the warrant for a number of reasons. First is the nature of the warrant. So the warrant that was issued for this piece of property um, involved not only heroin or allegations that the defendant had sold heroin at this residence in the past, um, but also firearms. And Deputy Dowdy had specific interactions with this defendant in the past where the defendant had used uh, firearms around this location before. Um, in addition, the defendant was standing right next to uh, his house, the house that he had used to sell heroin the day before when the officers went to execute the warrant. So the defendant was watching the officers arrive on the scene and enter a house that he was connected to that he had used the day before to sell heroin. That made him an inherent risk to the safe and efficient execution of the warrant. There was also testimony in the record um, at the suppression hearing from officers that the defendant was in the process of remodeling this house, that he spent some significant portion of his days at this residence. So I don't think there can be any real doubt that the defendant was connected to this property in a way that made it sufficient, constitutionally sufficient for the officers here to affect a summer's, a summer's detention. The Court of Appeals majority below reached a contrary conclusion and held that the defendant was not in fact an occupant because in its view, the defendant did not pose a real threat to the safe and efficient execution of the search warrant. And I think that decision uh, was based on a misunderstanding of the relationship between the Summers Doctrine on the one hand and the perhaps more familiar Terry standard on the other hand. The Court of Appeals was looking for the defendant to have done something suspicious, to have aroused the officer's suspicion, so some kind of unusual or, or questionable behavior. But that's not the test under Summers. The question under Summers is not what the defendant was doing at the time the warrant was being executed. The question under Summers is what the defendant or, or how the defendant is connected to the property. If the defendant is connected to a piece of property where officers have probable cause to believe that narcotics are being sold, that is an inherently dangerous situation that allows officers to affect a detention regardless of whether the defendant was doing something inherently suspicious or questionable at the time the warrant was executed. I think the best example of this is Summers itself. The defendant in Summers who was detained was not doing anything inherently suspicious at the time of his detention. He was walking down the front steps of his house. And yet the US Supreme Court held that he could be detained consistent with the Fourth Amendment because he had a connection to the house and was standing in the immediate vicinity of the location being searched when officers were carrying out the warrant. 
the warrant in that case, like the warrant here, was a valid warrant supported by probable cause, signed by a neutral and detached judicial officer who determined that there was good reason to believe that narcotics were being sold out of the home. And the U.S. Supreme Court held in Summers that that presents officers with an inherently dangerous and inherently risky situation. Mr. Broad, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but um, I'm looking at the order from the trial court denying the motion to dismiss. And I'm just wondering about what um, of the findings of fact support your argument that um, the defendant was a threat. Your Honor, I would point you to findings of fact four through eight, um, all of which I think get at why Deputy Dowdy reasonably believed the defendant here could pose a real threat to the safe and efficient execution of the search. And, and I think I would, would put those facts into sort of two major categories. Um, the first category is just the nature of this search warrant. Um, the warrant was supported by probable cause to believe that heroin was being sold out of the house. And in summers, the US Supreme Court recognized that that is an inherently dangerous situation. I think the danger here was heightened by the fact that this warrant was not just for narcotics, but also for firearms. Um, I think the second major category of um, of information that was known to Deputy Dowdy and that's set out in the trial court's findings of fact is that Dowdy had interacted with this defendant in the past. And I think these prior interactions that Dowdy had with this defendant are, are really important um, to both the detention and the frisk issue. Um, well, the, the finding of fact, particularly number five, um, is that he had interactions in 2011 and 2013. And this this search was in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Um, isn't that a little uh, rusty? Your Honor, is Your Honor is correct that um, the search here was in 2017. The prior incidents uh, involving Deputy Dowdy and the defendant took place between 2011 and 2013. So at the time of the search, these past incidents were roughly four to six years old. And I concede that um, that that the age of these prior incidents is a fact that that cuts against my argument. I don't think it's dispositive, though. I don't think it's dispositive because I think these prior incidents were uniquely probative of the question whether the defendant posed a real threat to the safety of the officers here. So, so let me start, if I could, with the two. Before you go any further, Mr. Broad, let's assume hypothetically we've got the same set of facts that we have here with the exception that there is no history of interaction between the defendant and any officer that did not involve the presence of firearms. Do you get the same result anyway? Your Honor, I think this would be a much, much harder case for the state without the prior interactions between Dowdy and the defendant in this location using firearms. Um, I, I think it would be much harder for the state to show that an officer would be reasonable in thinking that um, the defendant was presently armed and dangerous if the officer did not have any information, as the officer did here, that the defendant had used firearms in this location in the past. And, and I, I do think these prior interactions between Dowdy and the defendant um, are, are particularly compelling. So, so the 2011 incident, for example, um, involved Dowdy arriving um, at a house nearby uh, where the defendant had allegedly been waving a gun around inside the house. Dowdy and another officer arrived, uh, entered the house, and did not see a firearm. Um, and it was only after the officers had detained the defendant that the defendant told Dowdy that there was a gun in the house and the gun was concealed underneath a pillow on a bed uh, where, a, where a baby had been sleeping. So it, it wasn't just that the defendant had used a gun in the past, it wasn't just that the defendant had used a gun in this general area in the past. It was that the defendant had concealed a gun um, in the past. I don't, I don't see all of that detail in the findings that you mentioned earlier. The, what the finding number five says about the prior interaction is that in 2011, 2013, um, that officer had been called to the defendant's residence due to domestic disturbances in which the defendant had been brandishing a firearm and he arrested him in 2012 for assault on a female. Um, I don't see anything in there about concealing a gun or 
a child being nearby or, or even that the officer was being threatened. Is it somewhere else? Your Honor, I think finding the fact number five uh, does establish that the officer here was aware of a prior incident in which the defendant had brandished a firearm. And I, I concede that that is the extent of the detail that's provided in finding a fact number five. The facts, the, the more specific facts that I was referring to are at pages 43 to 46 of the trial transcript here, um, where Deputy Dowdy described in greater detail um, these prior incidents, which I think the trial court, you know, reasonably described at, at perhaps a higher level of generality than, than, than I would have described. But, you know, I think the trial court did identify the fact that these incidents in the past involved brandishing a firearm and, and, the, and the facts that I've just given you are uh, additional information that you can find in the transcript um, of the of the suppression hearing where Deputy Dowdy testified to these past. Are we, aren't we reviewing to see if the evidence supports these findings and if these findings support the, the search ultimately? Your Honor, that's that's right. And and if you want to just focus um, on the on the literal text of, of finding a fact number five, I still think that it's sufficient to support the conclusion that Deputy Dowdy acted reasonably here because the finding of fact indicates that the defendant had brandished firearms um, in the past um, and that Deputy Dowdy had been involved um, uh, or, or aware of um, the defendant's past brandishing of firearms. And I think that that knowledge that Dowdy had combined with just the general nature of the, the general inherent dangerousness of carrying out a search warrant on a residence where narcotics was being sold taken together uh, in light of the totality of the circumstances here supports the idea that Dowdy was reasonable um, in detaining and then frisking the defendant for for weapons. But to, to ask a variant of the question that I asked a minute ago, just to make sure I'm fully understanding what you're, you're telling us, Mr. Broad, let's say hypothetically that a defendant without the background of firearm use but who had uh, been, was the subject of a narcotics investigation, who lived in a house that was being the sub, being the, the location in which a search warrant was being executed. He sees the officers ride, a, ride up in their vehicles to search his vehicle, or search his residence. He's standing on the wheelchair ramp at his grandfather's house some 50 to 60 yards out there, and he simply stands there and does nothing. Where are we then? Your Honor, I think if if those were the facts, if you if you took out the past use of firearms, I think it would be a much harder case for the state, especially on the issue of whether it was reasonable to conduct a weapons frisk of the defendant. I mean, and you, I know you're going to get there in a second, but I think I think we're still at the detention phase right now. Right. Uh, assuming all of those facts, is it the state? Does the state have a position on whether Officer Dowdy? see somebody he knows is the subject of the investigation standing on an adjoining tract of property 50 to 60 yards off who is doing nothing. Can he be detained under, under uh, Summers, Bailey, Wilson, that line of cases? Yes, Your Honor. I, th I think that's right. I think the defendant under those circumstances, if you put the past firearm use aside, could be lawfully detained consistent with Summers given the fact that he was the target of the investigation, given the fact that he was associated with this property, had used the property in the past to sell drugs, and the warrant at the end of the day was for the property. Um, Do you have any sense of how far he has to be away before he uh, isn't uh, subject to categorical detention? Your Honor, I think it's a, a multi-factor test that's, that's, that's set out in Bailey. I think it is an intensely fact-specific question. I think at a, at a high level of generality, um, the closer you are to the house, I mean, the more likely it is that you're going to be within the immediate vicinity. Um, Bailey sets out at least three factors that courts can consider to decide whether a defendant is within the immediate vicinity of the area being searched. The first factor is whether uh, the defendant is within the legal meets and bounds of the property, which I, I concede was not, was not satisfied here. But Bailey also looks at two other factors that I think are important to keep in mind. One is the defendant's line of sight, and the second is um, the ease of the defendant's potential reentry um, onto the property being searched. 
And I think both of those factors here weigh pretty heavily in my favor um, and support the idea that the defendant was, in fact, in the immediate vicinity of the area being searched. So if you look at page 47 of the um, trial transcript, Deputy Dowdy testified that when he got out of his car, he was Im immediately able to see and identify the defendant standing next door to his grandfather's house. You also have testimony um, from one of the officers in the record that these houses were what he called, quote, not far away at all. Um, I think given the totality of the circumstances here, it was reasonable for Deputy Dowdy to conclude that the defendant was on the scene, um, on the site, in the immediate vicinity. I think in future cases, you're going to have to look at the Bailey factors and make an intensely fact-dependent decision as to sort of when is, when is too far away. I mean, we, we do have some data points from the case. Before, before you run out of time and cut, start cutting into your rebuttal time, could you tell me why you believe once the detention was appropriately effectuated, uh, the frisk was not problematic? Yes. Um, so the frisk was permissible under Terry because Deputy Dowdy had reasonable suspicion to believe that the defendant was presently armed and dangerous. And the reasonable suspicion arising from what? Two, two categories of evidence, Your Honor. First is the nature of the search warrant, the nature of the search warrant being on a residence where officers had probable cause to believe that heroin was being sold, a search warrant that also included uh, included firearms. And second, it's these prior incidents, these 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 prior interactions between Deputy Dowdy and the defendant in this location in the past where the defendant had had brandished firearms on at least two prior occasions. I think the, the combination of those two factors, the nature of the uh, the nature of the search warrant that was being carried out and Dowdy's prior interaction with the defendant, uh, prior interactions with the defendant that had involved firearms um, combined to make the frisk reasonable. I think it was reasonable for Deputy Dowdy identifying an individual that he had interacted with before um, interacted with in the context of the individual having brandished firearms to reasonably think that the defendant might be armed and dangerous. And I think that supports the reasonableness of what Deputy Dowdy did, what Deputy Dowdy did here. Was the frisk permissible pursuant to the search warrant itself or ancillary to the execution of the search warrant? I think it was permissible ancillary to the execution of the search warrant. I think this court in Wilson held that if you're going to justify a frisk, it has to be justified under Terry. So it has to be justified independently of any detention that might be affected under, under Summers. So you're not depending upon the frisk being warranted because of the search warrant itself and the defendant being positioned somewhere on the compound close by. It's ancillary to the search warrant execution. Yes, Your Honor, that's, that's correct. That's our position. Um, our position is that this is an this is an ancillary question. It's a separate question, and the reason that the frisk here was justified was because of the facts that were known to Dowdy um, at the time of the frisk, not the defendant's relationship to the property that was being searched. I think I think Your Honor's question gets at sort of the key difference between Summers on the one hand and Terry on the other hand. Summers is looking at what is the defendant's connection to the property that's being searched, whereas Terry is looking at does an officer have reasonable suspicion that the defendant is presently armed and dangerous. And I think those are two separate, those are two separate inquiries. I think one of the errors the Court of Appeals made here was to conflate those two inquiries. Um, and I would point you in particular to footnote three of the majority opinion. I, I know it's a footnote, but I think it's an important footnote. Um, at that footnote, the Court of Appeals seemed to indicate that under Summers, you have to show even more than reasonable suspicion in order to support a detention. And I, I don't think that's correct. I think Summers is a categorical rule that is rooted in the defendant's connection to the property. And, and that's what makes Summers different um, from the rule in Terry. But counsel, just so, so I understand, you, you are saying that there, there are situations as here where the evidence necessary to support a detention under Summers is the same and can be used to support the search for weapons. Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. That's correct. I think that in many of these cases, 
um, although these are separate and distinct inquiries, the facts that support what the officers did uh, to justify the detention may inevitably overlap with the facts that support a subsequent frisk. I think that's particularly true when officers are executing a search warrant on a house where they have probable cause to believe that heroin is being sold because the US Supreme Court has held that that is an inherently an inherently dangerous situation where guns may often be found. I'm happy to take any further questions, but absent questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time if I could. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the FLA. Thank you and good morning. Um, may it please the court. My name is Paul Smith with Patterson Harkavy and I represent the defendant FLE, uh, Michael Tripp. Uh, the Michigan v. Summers doctrine uh, cannot justify Mr. Tripp's detention. And I too would like to start by addressing the detention before getting to the other points here. Uh, I agree that Summers detentions are very different from detentions permitted uh, based on reasonable suspicion or detentions based on probable cause. And they're different because they are categorical. A blanket authorization permitting officers to lock down a premise that they are searching pursuant to a search warrant by detaining all of the occupants of the premises being searched. No questions asked. Um, Mr. Brud characterized this as being a standard that where the question of who, that first prong, is uh, the, the who is being individuals connected to the property. That is not the standard. That is not the standard this court announced in Wilson. It's not the standard used by the Supreme Court in Summers and Bailey in Michigan. The standard is occupants of the property, not anyone connected to the property. Um, the reason that this categorical extent, uh, exception exists and extends to all occupants um, is to protect the integrity of the execution of the search warrant. People occupying premises being searched under a warrant necessarily interfere with officers' ability to execute that search warrant. They can disrupt the search. They can get in the way. They can cause confusion. They can lay in wait for officers, hide evidence, walk out of the property with the evidence the officers are trying to find. Someone in the process of walking out of a property poses the same risk as we saw in Summers, and, and someone walking into a property poses the same intrinsic real threats to the efficient execution of the warrant, as we saw in Wilson. Um, uh, Mr. Mr. Smith, just to make sure I'm not, don't lose you at the beginning of your argument, I apologize for interrupting you so quickly. It, are you arguing then that an occupant is only a person within the physical confines of the premises to be searched, either because they're there when they get there or try, as the individual in Wilson did, to enter the perimeter while the search is going on, that that's the only type of person that can be an occupant? Thank you, Your Honor. I think that it, it, when you're looking at what an occupant is, it is necessary to look to some sort of physical presence at the time the search warrant or physical relationship to the property at the time the search warrant is being executed. Um, you know, this court in Wilson recognized when it was saying an occupant is someone who poses a real threat to the execution of a search warrant. There, that was because while he may not have been an occupant in the traditional sense, he would have occupied the premise if not detained. That's what this court said in the majority opinion. Um, and, and again, I think it's necessary to view it through that lens um, in large part because of the ends that this doctrine is trying to accomplish. Okay, so, so, the, so the difference between your definition of occupant and the one that we've heard Mr. Broad espouse today is essentially, are you within or coming into the perimeter uh, set out in the search warrant? I, I'm, I'm not sure if I would agree with that completely. I mean, I just, if I've misstated you, I mean, obviously, if I've misstated you, tell me how I've misstated you and what what you are in fact saying. Sure, uh, um, and and, um, and and we may be on the same page. I think, it, you know, it's when you look to these cases, when you look to the four cases, I think where someone's been found to be an occupant, that is what you see. When you look to Mueller v. Mena, there's someone actually in the four walls of the building. When you look to Bailey. When you look to Summers, it is someone that officers see coming out from inside 
an advanced surveillance at the time the warrant's being executed. And when you look at Wilson, it's someone coming into the property. Um, so, so I, I don't know if I'm going to sit here and categorically say, you know, these are the two things and there can never be anything else. But I do think that when you look at the reason this exception exists, it is about allowing law enforcement officers to execute a warrant of a place and detain occupants of that place. So it is necessary to look to, to some of the geography of that place to figure out who is in fact occupying it. You know, and the problem I think with the, the state's proposed new standard here that replaces the word occupant with anyone connected to the property, um, it, it begins to deviate from the reason this exists. Uh, and it also is no longer this categorical bright line rule that Summers establishes. Summers does not authorize detentions whenever there are facts that indicate that someone not occupying a property being searched might nevertheless have a sufficient connection to that property to allow the property to qualify as their residence or, or something to that effect. Um, so hypo hypothetically, uh, let's assume that we've got the facts that we have here. Uh, we've got an individual who is associated with the, I mean, I don't want to get into nuances about residence or anything, but is associated with the premises to be searched, standing not within the perimeter of that property, but, you know, not, not right on the property line, but some 50, 60 yards away, and I don't want to get into how fast can we all run to get there, uh, who has a history of firearm possession, but if that person then pulled out a firearm and held a firearm in his or her hand, but otherwise didn't do anything, would that person be an occupant of, as you understand that term? No, Your Honor. Um, and, and I think it's important that that person still may able to be, detention of that person might still be permissible. Well, and, and, that's, and, that's, and that's why I specifically didn't say that he waved the firearm around or pointed at anybody, just pulled it out and held it to his side, hypothetically. Your Honor, I think if we're looking at a case where an officer you know, subjectively knows facts suggesting that a bystander has some sort of regular tie to a property, sees that person pull out a firearm when a search warrant is being executed at that property, at that point, I think there's reasonable suspicion to detain that person based on the threat that they could pose to the officers on the scene. Even, um, even, though, even though that person may be lawfully, I mean, again, I'm just making up facts as I go along, but let, let's say that the person who does that is lawfully in possession of a firearm, has a concealed uh, firearm permit, and doesn't do anything with it other than hold it. Uh, if, if, they're, if they just... I mean, it might be trickier if they're just holding it at the moment the officers arrive. If they pull it out as the officers arrive at that point, there's certainly enough. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that sort of gets at one of the, the problems with the dissent in this case, which focuses almost entirely on a hypothetical risk that Mr. Tripp could pose to the execution of this search warrant if he were to attempt to shoot the officers from 60 yards away. Um, that's just a very separate inquiry. If there are objective facts suggesting that someone might open fire on law enforcement officers, the officers can always detain those people. That is not what Michigan versus Summers is about. There are separate doctrines that justify the detention of anyone officers reasonably believe might be about to assault an officer when there are objective facts suggesting that threat. And here, if Mr. Tripp, if, if Deputy Dowdy had gotten out, knew that he was being investigated, saw him pull out a gun, saw, even if he saw some indication he might be armed, if he was engaging in any kind of furtive movements or was approaching the property, um, in those circumstances, there well may be enough to justify detaining him because there are objective facts suggesting he might pose a real risk to the, to, to, to the officers executing the search warrant. Um, that doesn't mean that Michigan versus Summers, this categorical bright line rule that says you can lock down the scene of the search. You can put a pause on a scene where a search warrant is being executed by detaining everyone. No questions asked, regardless of what the individual officers know about those people. That doctrine you don't need in that circumstance. And of course, here, none of those facts are present. It is six o'clock in the afternoon. Mr. Tripp is standing 60 yards away from the property being searched, more than half of a football field. 
he is that's deputy Downey concedes not doing anything suspicious um he's not walking towards them uh there's no indication he has anything on his person suggesting that he is armed um he could not be detained uh uh, on the basis of any reasonable suspicion there. And because he wasn't, in fact, an occupant of the premise being searched, he couldn't be detained under Michigan versus Summers. Um, you know, opening this bigger inquiry into connectedness, you know, I think it's really worth thinking about how that would change what this exception is about. Um, and, and if you look at this case, you can see how, how messy and complicated and how far from the doctrine established in Michigan v. Summers that would put us. Um, yeah, before you go too far down that path, um, I think I heard you say if uh, the defendant here had been approaching the property. Um, as I think about that, the question comes to mind, um, if the law enforcement officers have uh, a search warrant for premises and the individual who owns or lives or frequents that property is walking toward the property, uh, but the property itself is two blocks away. Sorry, not two blocks away. Let's say two houses, three houses away. Um, at what point can the officers uh, actually detain that individual? Um, do they have to wait until uh, the person enters uh, the meets and bounds description of the property, the house itself. Uh, uh, what? How do you uh, address address that situation? I mean, I, I would imagine in, in that circumstance, often the police officers could just walk up to that person and and engage in a voluntary interaction with them if, if they needed to ask questions about the home or the search warrant or something like that. If there were any facts that came out based on you know, approaching the individual who was associated with the home being searched um, that suggested that they might pose a threat to the officers, they could be detained under Terry at that point. Um, if, if they just bore some relationship to the property at some point in the past and were several houses away moving in that direction, uh, they still would not be an occupant of the premises under Michigan versus Summers. So they there wouldn't be this, you know, across the board carte blanche authority to, to detain them under that doctrine. Again, there are many other doctrines that might justify their detention if, in fact, there are any facts that come up suggesting that they may be a threat. Um, but I don't think it's Michigan versus Summers. Um, and, and to go back to sort of this, the problems with changing the standard, not to occupants, but to individuals connected to it, you know, the, the facts in this case show how hard and how messy that analysis would be. Um, Mr. Tripp's connection to this property was, was messy and complicated at best. It was not his legal domicile. There's no evidence he had a bedroom in the house or that he stored his personal effects in the house. The building was under renovation. There were two other people inside of it at the time the search warrant was being executed. Um, it wasn't even owned by Mr. Tripp. If you look to pages 16 and 21 of the record, the officers identify Clarence Tripp, as the per as a, who lives next door, presumably Mr. Tripp's grandfather, as the person who both owned the house at 8448 and who was in apparent control of the house at 8448. Um, while other facts might satisfy some definition of the word residence regarding the property's relationship to Mr. Tripp, um, it is not at all clear. Um, and you know, even more problematically here, there is no evidence that Dowdy knew any of those facts that actually established a stronger connection between Mr. Tripp and the property. He knew that this was a street where Mr. Tripp's uh, family members owned several properties. Um, and he knew that he had encountered Mr. Tripp, albeit at different properties in, in this general area, never at 8448. Um, but he did not know about the prior day sale. Um, and, uh, and again, it only encountered him at different properties than this. Um, this is a categorical exception. So you're having to, to engage in this discussion, I think also shows how, how looking into the officers, uh, the, the facts that each officer knows about the relationships between an individual and the property changes it from a categorical approach. Officers are not required to reference their entire body of knowledge about every bystander to a search warrant execution. Um, in order to figure out if they're in fact occupying the premises premise to be detained. Um, this doctrine just doesn't depend on whether an individual officer subjectively knew sufficient facts 
from prior encounters to establish that a property was so connected to that individual that it, it, that individual counted as an occupant, no matter where they actually were at the time the warrant was being executed. Um, again, those facts are relevant. If the officer knows about a connection and actually sees objective facts suggesting there may be a threat to their safety, the individual could still be detained, but it's not relevant for Michigan versus Summers detentions. So you, you indicated that the police officer here or the officer uh, did not know of the prior day's drug transaction, and yet uh, finding a fact four indicates that uh, the officers involved were aware of the execution of the search warrant. Um, how, how, you know, why, what do you base your view on that the officer was unaware that there had been uh, sufficient information uh, for a search warrant of this property uh, to be um, obtained and the uh, fact that the search warrant says drugs and uh, firearms. Uh, Your Honor, the, the trial court explicitly found that Deputy Dowdy, quote, was unaware there existed probable cause to arrest the defendant without a warrant for the previous day's felonious sale of heroin to Deputy Jason Buck's confidential informant. Um, the state has not challenged that finding um, on appeal. Um, they have argued that it is Somehow it somehow means the opposite of what it says. Uh, that's an argument that came out for the first time an oral argument before the Court of Appeals um, that they meant to say they were aware. Um, that is improper. Uh, it's clearly a finding about what he knew. It was not challenged and it's supported by competent evidence and the findings of fact. Um, Chief Justice Newby, I, you know, I appreciate you directed our attention to those two paragraphs, paragraphs four and five. Um, if, because those are findings of fact about what was happening immediately before this search was executed. If you look to footnote two of the state's brief, where they're saying, look, by unaware, the trial court actually meant aware. Um, they, they go and they pull transcript sites about what was discussed at this meeting to try to suggest necessarily Deputy Dowdy must have known about it, notwithstanding the trial court's findings of fact to the contrary. Um, they don't cite findings of fact four and five, which is about that pre-rate meeting. Nothing in those findings state that the circumstances underlying the search warrant were explained to officers. The findings of fact do not state that investigator Buck relayed all of the information about the, the prior days controlled by to all of the officers conducting this search. Um, and it's understandable why the trial court characterized the meeting as it did in four and five and ultimately made the finding that Deputy Dowdy was unaware. If you look to the transcript sites um, that are pointed out in um, footnote two of the state's brief, they don't support the prospect that Deputy Dowdy knew any of those facts. Uh, Deputy Dowdy describes what happened at that pre-raid meeting and doesn't say that anything about the underlying criminal investigation was discussed as far as the actual facts, the prior day sale, nothing about that. Even Investigator Buck, uh, does not say at this meeting, I told them about the prior day sale. I told them about the facts underlying the search warrant. He just states his belief that the officers were aware um, of the control by without really giving much detail about that. Um, so, of course, it's not this court's job to step in and reweigh the evidence, especially when findings have not been challenged on appeal. But there's there's ample authority to support the trial court's characterization of what happened before the raid in paragraph four and five, and Deputy Dowdy's resultant uh, you know, unawareness of the prior days controlled by. Um, so, so that that you know that's a very important point um, because if Deputy Dowdy had known that Mr. Tripp had engaged in a controlled by the day beforehand, he would have been aware of facts giving rise to probable cause to arrest and could have arrested Mr. Tripp based on probable cause and searched him incident to arrest. This case wouldn't, it would be a lot simpler if Deputy Dowdy had in fact known those facts. Um, he, he did not. That is why we're having to engage in this additional discussion uh, about whether there's some other doctrine that could apply. So, so the one fact that the trial court did find was that Dowdy understood that the target of the search was the defendant. So apart from the Michigan v. Summers justification, if if it is a fact that Dowdy understood that the defendant was the target of the search, does that not rise to the level of sufficient 
um, information to justify a Terry stop? It, no, Your Honor, it, it does not. Just simply knowing that there's suspicion um, of uh, sufficient to give rise to a search warrant, I don't think supports uh, a detention under Terry. Um, I don't think the state or the dissent also based their analysis on the application of Terry. We're just talking about Michigan versus Summers here. Um, you know, I'd also, I think it's important to look at that finding. That is what Mr. Uh, Deputy Dowdy understood. He understood that uh, Mr. Tripp was the target of the search warrant. Um, that understanding was mistaken. Uh, Deputy Dowdy was confused. That is why we have such a messy record here. That's why the facts seem a little bit weird. Deputy Dowdy thought that the search warrant authorized him to seize Mr. Tripp. It did not. There's no dispute that it did not authorize his detention or search. So he gets out of the patrol car. The other 10 officers go to conduct the search. He sees Mr. Tripp and, confused about what the search warrant actually authorized, walks over and detained him. The reason that the facts, I think, are so seem a bit singular in this case is that everything after that has been an effort to, to find a box that these facts can go inside of to justify Mr. Tripp's detention, even though Deputy Dowdy actually detained him because, because he was confused about what he was authorized by that search warrant. Um, and, and why, Council, why do you contend that uh, uh, search of the defendant was not authorized by the search warrant? The search warrant, um, Your Honor, uh, was for the, the, the dwelling at 8448, uh, a single outbuilding to the back left of the property, even farther from where Mr. Tripp was standing, and several vehicles. Um, as the trial court found, there was no arrest warrant for Mr. Tripp, and the search warrant did not authorize Mr. Tripp to be um, to himself be searched. Um, so I, I don't think that there's been a dispute that this this search was was uh, justified by the search warrant. Um, and because it's not. What we're left looking at is what objectively Deputy Dowdy knew, and that's why these these distinctions about what he actually knew are so important. Um, if so, I want to be sure I understand your reasoning. Um, Deputy Dowdy, at best, would have heard from somebody, or during the meeting, perhaps, uh, that there had been a uh, controlled buy from the defendant the day before. Uh, does that give him the authorization to arrest someone when uh, he was not present during the control by, didn't observe the control by, uh, and has just heard from other officers uh, that a control by uh, took place? I mean, is that your view that that's probable cause to arrest somebody? Um, you're as a threshold question. I don't think there's any. Deputy did not know about the prior day's control. Uh, if you look to the statute cited um, in uh, conclusion of law number two, uh, 15A41B2A, um, uh, that statute does uh, permit uh, an officer to conduct a felony arrest pursuant to probable cause, even when the offense has been committed um, outside the officer's presence. Um, so if Deputy Dowdy, in fact, knew that uh, Mr. Tripp had committed uh, or new facts indicating that he had committed a, a felony outside of his presence. Um, uh, my understanding is that that statute would, would have been implicated. This case has never really had to engage in that issue in all that much depth because Deputy Dowdy was unaware of the prior day sale. I don't think we can look at this order that explicitly found he was unaware and say, well, surely he must have been aware. Surely someone would have told him. Um, you're, you're, you're reading unaware of the events to equate with unaware of probable cause. And is it your position that a police officer can have some general understanding of what led to a search warrant? Uh, and at the same time, uh, that gives the officer probable cause? Doesn't there have to be something more specific than just the general understanding of there was a drug deal yesterday, and now we've got a search warrant. In order for there to be probable cause to arrest, certainly there would need to be more. Yes, Your Honor. So, so it's, and, and I would note also that that's under a conclusion of law as opposed to finding a fact. Doesn't that indicate that the judge was weighing whether the um, police officer actually 
personally had sufficient information for that officer to have developed probable cause as to making a general statement about uh, what that officer may or may not have known regarding uh, the events that had occurred? Your Honor, I think that this is best read to, to state that he was unaware of that there existed probable cause, including because of those predicate facts that are then walked through. Um, there are also, there are no contrary findings to the contrary, in the findings of fact that suggested Deputy Dowdy did know about the prior day sale. Um, and that's understandable when you look at the transcript where Deputy Dowdy never claimed that he knew about the prior day sale or any of the facts underlying this. How did he know, how did he know that, defend, that Dowdy understood that the target of the search was the defendant? How did he know that? From the, my understanding is it's from the pre-raid meeting potentially. I'm not sure if the record's completely clear as far as how he found out that he was the, that he was the target of the investigation related to the search. Um, it, I think that it's the pre-raid meeting, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, I, I would, I see that my time's getting down. I would like to briefly address both um, the, the frisk and inevitable discovery. Um, this court was clear that uh, even if a detention is justified under Michigan versus Summers, that's just the detention, not a frisk. Um, I don't think that it is the law that you can ever look back and say, oh, well, look, this person possessed a firearm for five, six years ago and therefore must possess a firearm on this occasion. Um, here, there's no indication that Mr. Tripp was act actually armed on that occasion. Uh, no bulge, nothing suspicious, no furtive movements. Um, in fact, he was wearing pants that were so bad you could look into them. Um, and you could see Mr. Tripp, in fact, was not armed. Um, well, I mean, and, 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 and let's, let me ask you this before your time runs out, and I'll try to ask it quickly. Uh, assuming for purposes of discussion that the detention's proper, I understand you don't think it is, but assume, assume to the contrary. You detain someone, you are able to look at them, and the person is reputed to be a drug dealer, and you see a plastic baggie sticking out of the uh, person's pocket. Does that give you the ability to frisk that person? Um, not without more, Your Honor. You need to look at what that person said. They, you know, based on their experience and training, they, the conclusions they were actually able to draw based on that. Here, Deputy Dowdy testified, um, and I, I don't think there's a dispute about this. It was both the sight of the bag and when he felt and the frisk, felt how that bag felt. Um, it was the combination of those things that allowed him to, to draw the inference that these were narcotics, not just looking at the bag itself. But it would depend on, I think, what the officer actually testified about what inferences they were able to draw based on that fact. Um, I, I would, I, you know, I also want to touch briefly on inevitable discovery. You know, as a threshold matter, uh, inevitable discovery was not uh, the basis of Judge Stroud's dissent. She explicitly said she was declining to reach that issue. Um, it's a very different question whether there's been a Fourth Amendment violation as opposed to whether the inevitable discovery doctrine um, should mean the exclusionary rule doesn't apply. So I just don't think that's really before the court today. Um, that's especially the case when it comes to the argument involving the, the marijuana that was found um, inside the house. It wasn't an argument raised at the trial level. There are no findings of fact that would underscore that argument. It wasn't raised at the Court of Appeals in a PDR or in the opening brief filed with this court. So it's definitely not before the court. Um, it also, uh, you know, it's just also not what inevitable discovery is. It's right there in the in the title. Inevitable means inevitable. Um, here, just because Mr. Tripp was standing by his grandfather's front porch when the search started, um, it is by no means inevitable he still would have been standing there available for arrest at the conclusion of the search when the officers may or may not have decided to arrest him, um, even though they did not find heroin in the house. Um, so, so it's just very different from those cases in which we, we actually see inevitable discovery. Uh, you know, this court's opinion in State versus Pope, where there's a car in someone's possession and they say, no matter what, I'm going to search every single corner of this car. Um, and they eventually would have found the gun in there, even if the, the um, defendant in that case hadn't uh, made incriminating statements indicating the gun had been there. Um, so, so this, we're not looking at a situation where inevitable discovery is even applicable. Um, regarding the marijuana, again, it's not before this court. 
Um, this was a search for heroin that was not found. It's not all that clear when they're talking about drugs in the encounter that's sort of walked through in the reply brief. They're talking about heroin or marijuana. It's also not clear that there even would have been probable cause to arrest Mr. Trett based on that marijuana since it was found on a mantle between a kitchen and a dining room and a house that was occupied by two other people, not Mr. Trett. Um, so, so it's not clear he was even connected to that marijuana uh, as opposed to the, the other two people in the home. Um, you know, in closing, the, the, the facts here are uh, not what we often see in these sorts of cases because the detention here was actually a result of mistake. Deputy Dowdy's confusion about what the, the search warrant authorized him to do. Um, but Michigan versus Summers cannot provide a justification after the fact for this detention. Uh, Mr. Tripp did not occupy the premise. He was not seen coming in or out of the premise. He did not pose the same real threat to the execution of the search warrant that an occupant does under Michigan versus Summers. Um, this court should affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I want to start with this idea that Deputy Dowdy was mistaken um, about whether the defendant was named in the warrant. Um, I, I, I don't think that matters for at least two reasons. One is the Fourth Amendment is an objective test, not a subjective test. So Dowdy's mistake of fact about whether the defendant was named in the warrant is irrelevant to the analysis. I think in any event, the whole point of the Michigan versus Summers rule is that you don't need the defendant to be named in the warrant to support the detention. The defendant in Summers was not named in the warrant. The individuals who were detained in Mena were not named in the warrant. The defendant who was detained in Wilson was not named in the warrant. The whole point of this doctrine is that because those individuals were connected to the property and the warrant was for the property, that they could be detained because they had the officers had implicit authority from the warrant for the property. That's that's the whole real quick question about that. Mr. Broad, you're not contending here that the defendant was an occupant of the property. Are you? The defendant was not a literal occupant in the sense that I mean, he was not within the four walls of the house in Wilson. However, this court made clear that occupant is a legal term of art. It does not literally mean occupant. It's a question about whether the defendant could pose a real threat to the safe and efficient execution of the warrant. Well, this isn't the same like as in Wilson, where the defendant there said, I'm coming in to get my moped. The defendant here didn't do anything like that, did he? That's true, Your Honor. This is not a case where the defendant was attempting to break through an established police perimeter. But I don't read Wilson as saying that the, the only circumstance or one of the only circumstances when a defendant can be an occupant is when a defendant is attempting to enter the property. I read Wilson as setting out sort of a broader legal framework to try to understand what this occupant term means. And the, the, the broader framework this court gave is you, you ask whether the defendant could have posed, could have posed a real threat to the safe and efficient execution of the warrant. And, and as I understand that definition in Wilson, this court was getting at this broader idea, which you can see in Summers, which is, does the defendant have a connection to the property? That's at page 703 to 04 of Summers. The court is, is trying to figure out if you have a connection to the property, because if you're connected to the property where a warrant is being carried out, you could pose a real threat to the safe and efficient execution of the warrant. I mean, I think this case is a good example. The defendant here was standing right next door to a house where he had sold heroin the day before when officers went in to execute a search warrant. I mean, the fact that the defendant was sort of on one side of an invisible property line rather than another, I don't think is dispositive of the Fourth Amendment question. The, the, the Fourth Amendment question at the end of the day is whether the officers were reasonable. And I think it was reasonable for the officers here given that the defendant was the target of the investigation, as Justice, as Justice Earls pointed out, and given the fact that Deputy Dowdy was aware of the purpose of the investigation. I mean, if you look at, at finding a fact number nine, the trial court found that Dowdy was acutely aware, acutely aware of the reason for the search, whether or not he knew specifically about the prior day's transaction of heroin. He was acutely aware of the purpose of the search. He knew why they were there. 
He knew why they were there. They were there because they were carrying out a warrant supported by probable cause signed by a neutral and detached judicial officer that there was potentially heroin in, in, in this house. And that is an inherently an inherently dangerous situation as the US Supreme Court held in Summers. The, the point of the Summers doctrine is that officers should not have to gamble with their, with their safety. That if an individual has a connection to the property and is standing near the property at the time the warrant is executed, the individual can be detained consistent with the Fourth Amendment under Summers. Unless the court has further questions, we respectfully request that the court reverse. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to everyone. Madam Clerk. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess for 45 minutes. God save the state and this honorable court. Amy, are we taking lunch break? Because the sheet you sent out yesterday said the lunch break was between the third and the fourth argument.